This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musicians. Coming to you this week from Santa Monica. Seems like all the composers love Santa Monica. And who can blame them? This is Score the Podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Holmes. I'm Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft. Yeah. I could, I could step right on himself. you. We could, we could talk over each other, and I think that would be kind of be like a duet. We could do it that way. It would be like our name that score. Or theme. name that score, and that's Matt. Schrader, who's here running the board and keeping us all on task to get our questions together for this week's guest. A huge guest. And we're here in his studio. That's what brings us to Santa Monica. We're inside the studios of Grammy-winning, Emmy-winning, eight-time Oscar-nominated composer James Newton Howard. I can honestly say James Newton Howard was the first composer that I heard doing a movie score that I felt was moving towards this kind of new era of film composing that was modern and kind of pop yet classic. There was something really cool about his music that I related to right away and thought, "Mm, this is a new voice. And you're going to know his music from uh, the Hunger Games movies. He also did uh, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight with Hans Zimmer, The Sixth Sense, uh, even all the way back to Pretty Woman. And uh, I mean, there's so many, so many great movies. If you IMDb him, you'll be like, oh, my God, there, especially here in the hallway of his uh, studio. There's just gold records and movie posters. And I'm like, oh, he did that, too. Oh, my God. Right, right. The Fugitive. Yeah. Uh, Blood Diamond. Uh, King Kong, which we'll, we'll, we have a little clip of. The uh, new Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And then also he's doing, uh, I think, the sequels coming up, too. He just had Red Sparrow in theaters moments ago. He's got to be one of the busiest composers working today. He, I'm sure, uh, is probably, how many days in a year? 365? Is that where we are? I'd say 360. That hasn't changed in a while. I'd say 362 (laughs) or 3 is James Newton Howard's schedule for writing film music. It has to be with these number of films under his belt. Also coming up in today's episode, a behind the score segment featuring Hans Zimmer, Oscar winning composer. You may have heard of him. And uh, also, we're going to play Name That Score with James Newton Howard. And the topic today Danny Elfman scores. Ooh. Backwards. One of my favorite scores, Batman. Yeah, that might be one of the questions. Edward Scissorhands, a big favorite in the uh, Kraft family home. That just reminded me I need a haircut. Wow. Uh, all right, we, I want to jump into a couple things. Uh, Disney has released a score-only track for the Last Jedi when they mm. uh, for the home video. That sounds cool. So you'll have you know the regular film, maybe a director track, and then one track with just the score. And it got me wondering if this is going to be something that's moving forward. I mean, if you're going to start a trend, Star Wars is probably good place the, to start. A good place to start, and you know John Williams. I think we're in a place where more and more people are really aware of film music. We're in that era. So 
I think Clearly, it's a great if they're idea. releasing a, a cut, you know, of the the a track here that you can listen to the whole thing with the music, where there's something happening. And uh, actually, you're not only starting with Star Wars; you're starting with the maestro of maestros. Well, it's interesting too because most scores, I mean, when you get the album version, there's stuff that's not on the album that's in the film, and maybe it's stepped on by dialogue. So this may actually be unveiling other parts of a score that you may not have, you know, soloed out. In a, in a track like that. That makes me wonder, too. Robert, you have some experience inside of the uh, inside of the, the studio system, but uh, are you privy to any conversations, you think, that might that, that would have led to something like this in the past? Have they ever released a score-only track to a, you know, a Blu-ray or DVD version of something, or is that brand new? Yes. No. Maybe. Sometimes. <laughs> um, every director has fantasies of releasing additional content and every idea you can ever imagine was suggested and basically until this always shot down there was so man, this is a breakthrough here. it is it was hey we need a soundtrack of can we get a soundtrack of just the sound effects oh well it's a fair idea but i don't think anybody would i mean i sat through all those meetings and they always want as much in the marketplace as possible this is new plus it's just kind of a, i mean if you're a diehard fan of something and you've watched it so many times you don't really need the, the a dialogue. super fan and i've only encountered this type of thing once on um i i saw part of the matrix and on one of the extended you know whatever packages they had of that uh they they advertised a composer track and they had don davis on there and uh, it, it was a it was mixed so that there was no dialogue. It was his score, and and he would just completely step out for a couple pieces of music, and you could see the visual storytelling. You know, the start of the Matrix is that that you know f- kind of famous thing that's been endlessly parodied of you know jumping up in the air, the cameras rotating around, and everything, and the kind of trumpet sound that they had, and all of that stuff that was really that was really different when that came out. And uh, and it wasn't until a few minutes in you would say you would hear him say okay Don Davis here the composer of this but oh, you could nice. hear these big chunks of of the movie and kind of follow now granted there's not much dialogue there but you could follow the scene and really hear that music and it's a really cool experience. It's, it's interesting because of- it lets the audience understand a little bit more about what the film composer does and what he or she looks at to make decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of cool music. I've been listening to the soundtracks of two new television shows that I both of which I absolutely adore and it's interesting to hear the way they're being musicalized because they're predominantly song scores and they are very very contemporary contemporary song scores it's the chai which is believe that's how it's pronounced it's about chicago it's shy the uh-huh. shy the shy well i see the chai which is a difference about tea um <laughs> the shy at least, the, at least that's how i hear the kids saying it on the street okay i'm going with the I'm shy. from the shy i'm from the shy the shy I'm, i've been saying the chai which is probably why no one knows what i'm talking about they the just mu- give you a cup of, of tea right the music in the shy is so great and the needle drops of the songs are great equally great is the music from atlanta oh and the music from awesome. Atlanta on both sides, it's both Ludwig Goranson, who scored Black Panther and does a lot of work with Donald Glover. Childish but, Gambino. Right, Childish Gambino, exactly right. But just the 
really great Atlanta music, down trap music, super cool music. I know that Donald Glover has a lot to do with it. Donald's uh, partner in crime and manager, Fam, also works on it, Jen Malone. That music, I find tremendously a real great character in the Atlanta, the Atlanta series. And I listen for the music each episode because well, it's, it's another way to score films is, and score television shows is with songs of the moment. It's kind of been underutilized in the last uh, you know decade or so. We've seen a little bit more and more Black Panther. You know, used yeah. used a lot of yeah. uh, same, a lot of those same kind composer. of composer. Actually, the Ludwig Matrix, Lawrence. the Matrix, coming full circle, used electronic music, and Don Davis' score was in between big needle drops of electronic cues. Yep, it's but, cool the way Atlanta does it too, because they they're in clubs a lot, or they're in the yeah. car, and they the editing, the way they do the songs, it'll be you know the 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 song is scoring a scene and then they'll get into a car and then that same song is like sounding different to your ears but it's playing in the car or in the club or something like that uh just the way the songs are used it's so impressive and i'm a big fan well we've got a big guest we're here in his studio uh coming up after the break you want to stick around we're going to talk with eight-time oscar-nominated Grammy-winning, Emmy-winning composer James Newton Howard. We're here. He's coming in. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, Film Score fans. Matt Schrader here from Score the Podcast. We need your support as we launch into this competitive podcast world. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. We're working to bring you the best guests possible from the music of the screen. Better yet, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for telling a friend and supporting Score. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we're here with James Newton Howard. A real privilege to be in James' studio, one of the great composers of film music of our generation. And Grammy winning. Any generation. Emmy winning. Correct. Eight-time Oscar-nominated composer. Thanks for having us in, James. Hey, it's nice to, nice to be here. Glad you guys could make it. Oh, it's just a privilege. It really is. I think I've said that once. I might say it three times because I was thinking about music of yours that's influenced me and I just asked the date of one of my favorite films and it was just when I was beginning to understand film music it was a score of yours it's a big surprise coming up but we have uh what a tease yeah (laughs) well you know I like to be that way (laughs) we had a discussion about James Newton Howard recently where I was told something I didn't realize which is that the end of signs I was told James had said at one point that was the one of the hardest cues he'd ever written. Is there something specific about this moment or this film that made this so difficult? Um, well, you know, they're, they're kind of all difficult, as That's you know. That's what I was going to say. Um, that one, I think it was the fact that, I think it was the first, the first, 30 versions weren't as difficult. Oh, man. You know, got, got getting into the 40th and the 43rd and 44th versions. Uh, you know, we, I just rewrote it for months. Is it because the film kept changing? The actual footage was changing in front of you that you had to keep rewriting? Or the director just said, this isn't doing it for me? Do you remember? 
Um, it was more the latter, you know. I mean, but they were subtle changes. It's not as though I rewrote, you know, re reimagined the entire queue. They were just, you know, where are we going to peak? Where are we going to? What themes, if any, are we going to reprise? I mean, how bold can we be over an interior scene when it's just a guy swinging a baseball bat and uh, still maintain our credibility? And maybe we didn't. I'm not sure. But, you know, with Knight's movies, uh, which has been kind of a burden for him, I think, to some extent, um, for a period of time, there was such a large, great expectation of some incredible big finale ending. And so, you know, mm. the endings were always of great uh, concern and, and great focus of attention. So, you know, I think since then, I've, I've had a lot more difficult cues since then. But that was a milestone for sure. I'm wondering, I mean, you said it. I, I mean, I look at what you do. And think, is it ever easy? That's, I actually wasn't a question I was intending to to ask, but I I can't imagine you walking into a film say cakewalk. Is there ever a cakewalk? Pretty Woman might have been a cakewalk. How nice! That was twenty minutes of piano and strings, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't get those anymore. You know, I get the two hours of music and wall to wall and huge all hell breaking loose, and that's good. I'm really honored, and I I love that kind of a score you know it's a big music opportunity and um, that's kind of where I live so and speaking of music opportunities with the dark night you you did that with Hans Zimmer amazing score when you when you partner up with somebody how do you decide who does what um, you know you did the Harvey Dent theme and how do you divvy that up well we really kind of changed from the first one in Batman Begins we truly both touched every cue and we were both kind of looking over each other's shoulders we were set up in uh, adjacent film studios at air studios i mean, um, at recording studios at air in london and i would hear what hans was writing he could hear what i was writing and we would just kind of reach over and four hands on the keyboard truly at, at various times until um you know we had a kind of a it was always friendly com a friendly kind of competitive uh, atmosphere and um I would say that Hans certainly has to be credited with the, the famous two-note French horn theme. Mm. Um, I had written what I thought was a, was a really good theme uh, and played for that moment when, when, when Bruce Wayne goes into the bat cave and all the bats come flying around. And I thought it was pretty good. And then the next day, Hans arrived with, this, with his you know, infamous kind of ostinato with the two French horn notes. And that was clearly the way to go. So it was... It was a mutual effort on that on that one in terms of pretty much every cue. I would say in the Dark Knight, it got mo much more uh, delineated. Lennon and McCartney, in other yeah. words, he verse <laughs> and I wouldn't eight go that bar far. bridge. Well, you know that he. I remember one day at the beginning of the Dark Knight, Hans was out of town or something. Or I guess he just hadn't arrived yet for a meeting, and I was over at his place, and I walked into his studio, and I was just sitting there waiting for him, and I saw his in his sequencers there. And I just said, God, I really want to just hit the space bar and see what happens. <laughs> and, I, and I did. And I hit the space bar, and that whole preamble by uh, bank robbery cue came up. Ooh, such an incredible scene. Such an incredible but, score. Uh, who, who knows who wrote that? No he one. wrote it. Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you're generous. <laughs> no, he wrote that. And it just blew me away. And I, I kind of thought, wow, what, why am I even on this movie? Um, you're but, modest. Well, you know, it evolved, and then we did both contribute. And I, you're, you're right, I, I was lucky enough to work uh, on the Harvey Dent stuff and, you know, a bunch of other things as well. But that one was more, he'll take the Joker, I'll take Harvey Dent, he'll take this, I'll take that. But Did you ever 
switch off and say, hey, I'm going to take a stab at this character or, or write sort of alternate themes? Yeah, sure. It wasn't, it wasn't consciously um, set out that way, but there were plenty of scenes where, you know, the Joker would walk into a, or he would cross-pollinate into a scene with Harvey Dent, and I'd be working on Harvey Dent, and I'd sort of do something Jokerish, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we found our way. Robert does a lot of Jokerish um, things. I was going to say, I'm trying to think of anything I do that isn't Jokerish. Um, I had another curious moment recently. My youngest son, Lucas Craft, his favorite cue is from King Kong. Hmm. I mean, it's just he's a big film music fan. You wouldn't think it because he's not in film music, but wow, this quick. is like this is like his theme. When, yeah, he, yeah. when he's going to do something kind of epic. Um, <laughs> it has been for years, too. And this question is actually from Lucas. He said, Okay. And it, I think he, is, he said, I heard that James wrote that in two weeks, the whole movie music. I said, I don't know if it's two weeks, but I can ask him. But I know that there was a big change and you came in to rescue or change. Was everything replaced? Did you start from scratch? And how long did you have? Um, well, it wasn't two weeks. It was four and a half weeks. Mm. And That's still insane. <laughs> it's totally insane. Completely. And I, I'll never do it again. And, you know, I'm, I'm still recovering from it. it was, <laughs> I don't know how many, a decade at least ago. But I, I couldn't do it now. You know, I, I was at a point somehow where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old now, Robert. I mean, come on, I'm 66 <laughs> years old. No but I mean, way. But uh, 36. <laughs> I was able to, you know, it was that adrenaline thing. I mean, I got a call from uh, from my agent saying, are you interested in doing this? And he could barely, you know, it was very sato voce. Uh, and I said, of course, That I was at dinner that night. And, Amazing. Um, I went right back to the studio and started writing that about 10 o'clock without seeing any picture. And the next day, you know, talked to Peter and, and we were off and running. I read somewhere that you met Peter over Skype. Is that right? Well, we did the whole thing. It was, yeah, over a polycom. It's basically a, a fancy Skype. But, mm-hmm. yeah, we recorded the whole score and worked out the whole thing with uh, myself here and, and Peter in New Zealand. We finally met at the premiere. So, That's wow. um, amazing. Yeah. it was. Um, How about it, the hours, the time difference? Were you doing strange hours here so that he could be awake? Yeah. I mean, I was basically working around the clock. So, it was, you know, that wasn't too much of a problem. So, if it was 2 in the morning here and he, you know, that had to be the time that he was around, I was still working. So, What's right. that dynamic like when you, you, you've never met someone, you're working on something so, I mean, you, you really have to connect with a director on these projects. You're coming in sort of last minute so to speak, relatively speaking, and you've Not never... relatively speaking, like <laughs> literally. Last minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and you're, you've never met, and I mean, I know you're, you're video calling or you're talking, but is it different than sitting there with someone and, and sort of being in the room and, and feeling them out? Yeah, it is, but, you know, to me, and I, I, don't, I don't know what happened with Howard and... Um, Howard Shore. Howard Shore and, and Peter, obviously they have an a profound relationship that's been incredibly successful and and Howard's an amazing composer and I, I don't know what happened I never asked um, I know when I think of King Kong I immediately had kind of a a sense of what I would want to do and when I saw some of the film I, I felt I just felt a, cl- a clarity about what uh, what it wanted to be and wow, I, I lucked out beautiful and lucky and thank God that what you saw you didn't realize oh my goodness i've really gone in the wrong direction the interesting thing to me is whether sometimes when you have a gun at your head you do your best work because Mm. 
it's just a huge score. Mm. I mean, it's just a tremendously it is emotional. You know, and I was really, I remember, I remember when, I, when it didn't get nominated. You know, I never get I rattled about that because I really don't think about it. But I thought, I knew that there was a, some kind of consensus in the, in, the, in the music community that I couldn't have written that myself, that I must have brought in you know, 25 guys. Or, and I did write it myself. And I was really proud of it. And I, and I felt really hurt that, that, you know, oddly enough, how stupid is that? I mean, to feel hurt when you don't get a nomination. Not but that stupid. one really yeah. made me angry. I just wonder how you hear, I can't do the interval. Um, (laughs) Minor six. Yeah, is it a minor six? Yeah, D, B flat, E flat. Because my Bonnie lives over over the ocean ocean. would be a major six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. You're I right. have to flat it. Is that what you thought when you first heard the theme? No, I <laughs> ripped off my Bonnie. <laughs> yeah, my this gorilla is... lies over the ocean. I mean, no, no. I didn't think. I thought that interval is very emotional. I don't know why, and I didn't know what it was till this moment that it's a minor six. Yeah, it's very. Um, you pine for something when you hear that. Well, it's a sad story. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's yep. a sad story, and I. I mean that. Did that. Like, theme come to you that before you saw a picture do you have any memory of when you said you heard move music and then you saw a picture did that theme the night at dinner sort of show up as epic sad because that's a powerful piece of music oh thank you so much i mean I, i would say no that didn't just appear um that it probably came as a result of immersion in the movie a little bit and just something that had to be broad and expansive and kind of dark and mysterious and portentous and you know they just it where does it come from who knows i am occasionally portentous my wife says but i um, (laughs) pretentious that that, maybe that's what she says i i always think i'm portentous can i ask one other uh, quick question about king kong and other other movies where wow he sounds like such such a dj (laughs) he's good just wait till later (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) you'll be surprised um we uh for for name that score um, we have um, there's there's the thought when you come in and and you know quote unquote rescue a film or, or come in very very late in the process and you're writing music quickly. Do you find that you get any more leniency from the director given that time is now a major factor, or or is the tension all the more stressful? Well. First of all, you do not get any more leniency. You know, I mean, you know what, man? Just write a B plus score right. for this. You don't have a lot of time. Yeah, just okay will do. Uh, no, you don't. You don't get any leniency. But I, I think, as Robert said, there's, there's, no, it's unquestionably true that, you know, if you have a small amount of time, if you're really under the gun, I think that's that's kind of what a film composer does. You know, I mean, you have to write hopefully well, and you have to write quickly, and you have to rewrite quickly, and mm-hmm. so. You know, I think the conditions are all pretty much the same, except you just have a lot less time. Well, you can't psych yourself out either, right? You got to just make decisions and and go with it. And well, it's easy to panic. You know, I panicked a little bit, and that there's a scene in uh, the Fifth Avenue when when King uh, King Kong is rampaging th- through the city, and he stops and he sees Anne s- standing there, and he picks her up, and they go to this kind of beautiful. Uh, uh, platonic kind of love moment which they really shared for each other and I, I rewrote that theme for Peter over and over and over as days would pass and I still didn't get it and I was kind of quietly freaking out but we eventually got it alright guys we got to pause for just a minute uh, coming up after the break we're going to talk about James's classic Oscar nominated score for The Fugitive and touch on Fantastic Beasts and where to find them but first Behind the Score Behind the Score 
the inside stories from Hollywood's greatest filmmakers and composers. If there's any one dominant sound in Hollywood over the past two decades, it's that of Hans Zimmer. Born in Germany and raised in England, his accent is as unique as his musical interest, encompassing the emotion of the story while pushing the limits of what a score can achieve. To Hans, every second is a valuable one, and a film starts as soon as the production company logos appear. I always try to grab those first few moments. Uh, you know, I try. You know, I try to get into the logos. I mean, just give me that little bit of real estate for the music to just do that. I mean, Sherlock Holmes. Um, you hear the timbalom and the violins. You know, it's not going to be a normal Sherlock Holmes movie. The whole idea of setting up this idea of taking the audience on a journey that they might not expect. Zimmer says it's a tactic he first employed on The Lion King, for which he won an Academy Award. You know, here the expectation was, up till then, Beauty and the Beast, etc. These movies have been very much, you know, these Broadway princess fairy tales. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. And here we were doing this weird thing in Africa and what, what have you. So I thought, if right at the beginning I put my friend Lebo M's voice, I mean, that chant. You know, it just sort of says, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is going to be different. It's, but it's going to be interesting. And so come along on this journey. Batman. You hear the, those, you know, bat flaps. Just tiny little iconic thing that will tell the audience to expect sort of the unexpected. Great film music can elevate the movie. And I think that's really what you should aim for. So part of it is this, where our job is we can invite the audience in to have an emotional experience. Not to tell them what to feel but to tell them that the possibility exists to feel something. Zimmer's work on The Lion King earned him not only an Oscar, but also a Grammy for the album and launched a Tony Award-winning Broadway play. Disney is currently in production of a live-action Lion King film directed by Jon Favreau, set to release in 2019, for which Zimmer is writing the original score. For more stories behind the score, read Score. The interviews, based on the international hit film Score, a film music documentary featuring raw insight from Hans Zimmer, James Cameron, Quincy Jones, Randy Newman, Trent Reznor, and many more. Score, the interviews, available now at score-movie.com. Hey, we're back with James Newton Howard, and uh, as I threatened at the beginning of the podcast... The deep tease... I wanted to ask him about a film score that he wrote probably before I even knew that I was going to be deeply involved in film music that I thought, you know, there are a couple things you hear in life that you think, I wish I'd written that. I didn't, I knew I couldn't write like that, but Matt, if you have this one, I, this is one of my favorite film scores of yours, and I also think it's a benchmark in film scoring. From The Fugitive. It's from The Fugitive. I always thought that was just super cool. Oh, thanks, Robert. I just thought, 
all the kind of jagged piano married to the rhythm. And I also think that you influence film scoring going forward because there were a lot of scores after that that started to kind of use that hmm. way of driving the action. Do you remember? In other words, action cues before that felt fairly consistently a certain way. That one was hip. That was just... It was jarring. It was dissonant. It was rhythmic in a way. And I remember where I heard it and how I went to... I knew Celia Ward. She was in the movie. Oh, right. Yeah. She, she was a, the murdered wife. Yes. Beautiful. And I think we went to the premiere, and I remember hearing that. It's called The Stairway Chase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this is new. I'd never heard it. Um, had you written like that before? Did The Fugitive bring that out? Uh, well, you know, for me, I don't know. You said it you, you, very kindly and generously that you consider it something of a landmark score. It certainly was to me personally because it, was, it scared me to death. Mm. Um, you know, I'd done one action movie before that, uh, The Package, which was mm. also directed by Andy Davis. And that was a big struggle. But when I saw The Fugitive, um, I had put some Jerry Goldsmith up against a couple scenes from uh, a couple of his movies. And I completely panicked because it was so good. Oh. I thought, wow, that was a big mistake. I should have put up <laughs> Harold Faltermeyer or something. Right, exactly. It would have given me, not that he's not great, but it would have given me more confidence. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, I'm a pianist. So it was, I think Jerry heavily influenced me in those mm. days. Um, I still think he he has a kind of a big part of my I voice. I saw a great photograph of you and him as we walked into your beautiful studio. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I had the pleasure of hanging out with him a little bit, and he was just so supportive of me in the early days. But, you know, when you're doing something, you're just trying to survive. That's what I was doing. I, 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 Andy, when I talked to Andy, he thought my score was too big. And I said, you know, I think you have a big action movie here. I really was thinking of it in terms of Philip Noyce, or I was thinking of it in some of Horner's great stuff, and is it Jack Ryan, that, that character in some of those movies? Yeah. I think you have a really big, epic kind of chase movie here. And he, and he finally got used to the idea. And the piano just kind of came along because that's what I do. And, and a lot of the, my early scores are piano-based. Um, and then I really intentionally started to become more orchestrally oriented because I wanted to get away from the piano. But, yeah. What's interesting you say about, it, you know, it's too big. I think what I dug the most about this sound is that it's kind of lean and not mm. overt. Right. It's like snakes in there as you know tension and propels it but it's not what i was used to in action movies a big orchestral thing saying now now we're running away right but this was a kind of moment that said it's really tense and it's interior in a way i can't mm. explain it any better than that it's not over orchestrated and it's not over big and yet it nails it well you know it feels to me i i feel a sense of the original fugitive the oh, TV cool. show in the 60s because yeah. it does have a 60s thing yeah, about it I see that and um, in much the same way I think that King Kong had a feeling of a classic 40s kind of score the original and that's that's not intentional that's just because you know what are we other than everything we've ever heard and absorbed the and material. then spew out again so the, I think without question I was kind of unconsciously remembering the original score. There's also in that cue, I'm not sure we heard all of it, there's a little bit of a sequencer going of a kind of electronic thing. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was 
something that you were experimenting with at that time, had used a lot, knew would be a part of the future of film music, but there's kind of a rhythmic thing that goes under it. That was, you know, something I did and a lot of other people did as well, a lot in the 80s and um, 90s. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I worry sometimes that I, that that will sound incredibly dated someday. And I think in places it does a little bit now. But um, even then, I remember consciously trying to imagine what this was going to sound like 25 years from now and just tamping that down a little bit, tamping some <laughs> of the electronics down a little bit so it just felt like, okay, it's a, it's a credible part a credible part of the vocabulary of the orchestra and not something outside of it, but just something that you could say, well, that can be part of the orchestra from now on. I want to touch on uh, Fantastic Beasts because you've come into this sort of Harry Potter spin-off world. It's a musical world. There's, uh, you know, the music's a big character in Harry Potter. What, do, what elements do you pull from that world? And then where do you kind of go your own direction and start fresh? Or how do you find that middle point? Well, you know, listen, when you follow in the footsteps of the greatest guy who ever did it, um, it's pretty much the case with John Williams. And and what score is better known than his theme for Harry Potter and that incredible collaboration that that occurred? So I came into it first incredibly humbly, Mm -hmm. um, very respectful, but I did want to I did want to put my own stamp on it and, and end up with my own thematic material. That was really important to me. I mean, I knew we would have a little bit of Hedwig's theme in the, over the WB logo in the front and in a mm-hmm. couple other places, but I fought really hard to get my thematic material in there and get John's out. And that is not nothing personal, John, if you ever hear this. It's just because it was a new franchise. Harry Potter isn't born for 80 years yet, so why would you, be, oh, wow. theoretically, if you look at the logic, why there is no logic to play Hedwig's theme in a, in a story where Hedwig doesn't exist for another 80 years. So, um, yeah, we finally got there, and I, I, I basically embraced John's uh, orchestral sound as best as I could. Nobody does it quite like he does, but I knew it was going to be fairly sophisticated orchestral writing and i found that just a wonderful challenge and it's something i was really anxious to do is there is there some push and pull with the producers and and the people involved uh wanting that sound you know because with the whole thing with temp music and and people coming in wanting to hear a certain sound do you do you really have to fight that or or how how lenient are they letting you take control of that situation well, again, you know, the, the, the movie is going to be screened in front of recruited audiences and executives and friends and family and <clears throat> all kinds of people are going to rescore, uh, respond to the score. I would say that um, it was a question of a constant engagement over a long period of time and, and me just um, listening to what David Yates had to say and he was very articulate about it. But you have to remember, that was the first movie of a new franchise. So it, that score and every aspect of that movie was subject to intense scrutiny because everybody wanted to make sure the launch of this new thing was going to be successful. And I think now that we did have a big success with the first one, that there's a higher trust level and everybody feels more comfortable and there's some kind of shorthand creatively. And Well, you must have passed the audition because you're doing Fantastic Beast 2. And 3. And 3. As it turns out, yeah. Oh, my so goodness. You're, be, you're booked. I'll when, be beasting for a while. When do you beast next? <laughs> uh, well, I've, I'm in the middle of writing it right now. We record it in August, and oh, then um, it'll be kind of the same schedule in 2020. Wow. So. Do you feel like with a, a series, this was the case with maybe The Hunger Games too, but um, do you feel like a second movie or even even 
the Batman movies. Um, do you feel like with a second movie you can expand musically and and embrace some of the themes that maybe felt new to an audience in the first movie? Yeah, I think you can within reason. I think you have to do it in a way that is supportive of the film. You know, you can't just try, I want to use my theme again so people start to get used to it. But, you know, the second one is such a different movie from the first one. It's, mm-hmm. it's much more, it's much denser. It's, it's perhaps darker. You know, a lot of what happens in a first movie like that is you're introducing all the characters and there's a lot of exposition. But this one is really exciting and all kinds of new people are introduced and, you know, it's really fun. I just love to hear you say this one is really exciting, which means... Needless to say, and why would any of us be surprised that you still get excited about going to work every day and doing stuff? And that, in some ways, is as inspiring as my final question of the day for you. We're really what a buildup. We're really cruising. But (laughs) I think when I first learned about you, one of the coolest things that I was told was that you had been in bands and that you had been playing keyboards with rock stars and I thought first of all as a young composer that felt to me like wow you mean you can cross over because I was so in pop music in fact I don't know if you know we act you actually improved a record that I produced and it was I learned from your additional overdubs and production oh I never would have thought of that and it was really meaningful to me what was it? It was Vonda Shepard, oh, Don't right. Cry Eileen. You added these synth pads. Mm. I had done it all acoustically. She brought you or Benny Medina or somebody said, you know, we need a little something. And you put these synth pads. It so made the record work. Ah, you're... And, oh, I just learned. Okay. That was a great record. She's a great artist. Great. Great artist. And um, I know that, of course, I even saw as I walked in here, I didn't mention it because I wanted to ask about it. There's a picture of you and Elton John. And I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times, but I don't know the story of how you met Elton or Elton found you. And I thought you'd share with our listeners that piece of your career, including why you didn't go off to become a touring musician for the rest of your life, playing gigs and, you know, around the world, how film music took you away from that. I'd love to know. You know, it's it's one of those um Joining Elton's band was one of those miracles that you know happens to you. And uh, one day, and it really felt like a Cinderella story because I was playing at the time. I was playing with Melissa Manchester. Hmm. This is like 1974, and we were touring the country in a station wagon. And you know, I was making a little bit of money, but I mean, very little money. Um, and uh, do you know Gary Katz? Very well. Yeah, I Gary? wanted him to produce one of my records because he was a Steely Dan guy. Yeah, and he's a great guy. And yeah. I auditioned for a solo album at uh, ABC Dunhill when he was A&R over there. Yep. And he said, wow, I think you're really good, but they're never going to sign you here. So, you know, good luck. Go, mm. go write some music for Keith Emerson or something. I was playing <laughs> him solo piano music. But miraculously, when Howard Rose, who was Elton's agent, when Elton broke up his band in 74, he decided he wanted to add a keyboard player. And I was reading about this in Rolling Stone, you know, thinking, wow, what a gig that would be. <laughs> um, and six months later... Um, I was asked uh, if I wanted to meet with Elton about playing keyboards in his band. And evidently he had heard these demo kind of solo album things that I had done, courtesy of Gary Katz. Perfect. Because Gary said to Howard Rose, yeah, there's this guy, James, let me look. Um, And I went went up and met with Elton. Here in L.A.? Here in L.A., up in um, Truesdale, this huge house. And uh, he was, let's see, I was 20 three so he was 27 and 
I never played a note for him, but I did see my album, my little oh, funny cool. little long lost album there. Hmm. Um, and a week later, I was playing at Wembley Stadium. Unbelievable. Wow. Um, well, actually, two weeks later. Cause we did but yeah, and it was um, spectacular, and he was so generous, and it changed my life. And at a certain point, I felt like I had something else in me that I wanted to explore. I didn't know what it was. Hmm. Um, I really hadn't written very much at that point, but I felt like I had to leave the band. And so I. That's really incredible because most people would say, I'm golden. I'm going to play yeah. in rock bands. I'm going to be a studio rat oh. and play all these gigs and look at my credential. I played with Elton John. Oh. So you left the band. I did. That's a bold move to it leave is. Elton John's band. Well, yeah. And I remember Elton saying to me, you know, he was never anything other than the most supportive guy you can imagine. Mm. He said, use me. He said, use the fact that you know, you've been in my band. And I didn't even have to do that because everybody now knew, had some idea of what I did, at least in the studio session world. And um, so I started getting a lot of work. And when I came back and then somebody offered me a movie and I turned it down and they offered it to me one more time and I was scared, so I did it. And that was in 1984. Was it head office? It was. I just saw the poster <laughs> here. I, I saw the poster and I thought... Head office. I remember... I don't know if I saw it, but I remember the movie coming out because I knew Deborah Hill. Right. What a nice lady. And Linda Obst. They were Another partners. nice lady. And I yeah. did some work with them, and I saw a head office, and for some reason I thought, I wonder if this is near the beginning of James's That career. was the beginning, and I loved it. I just fell in love. I thought, you know what? It's Eureka. I've found what I'm supposed to do. How great. And you haven't since, or have you since, asked Elton John to either play on a score, write a song, an end title? Have you ever had any professional reason to use him? That's a good idea. I haven't yet, although I've worked with him a lot oh, since then. Really? Um, yeah. We, I've Playing on records? Conducting. Or? Oh, nice. You know, we did, we did some gigs at Radio City. I conducted for five nights, did some gigs in London. We're still good friends. Um, uh, you know, he's he'll, he'll always be my hero, and I do anything for him. But I am going to think about. I'm kind of yeah, feeling let's set that a Fantastic Beast Two <laughs> theme song. Let's get another uh, end, mic. End title song. <laughs> we'll call idea. Elton up. Your cue. Somebody writes a lyric to your big theme. Not that I've done this before or thought right. of these ideas before. <laughs> no. And Elton sings it on his world tour. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think that's you're a big onto record. something. Yeah, that's it could be. We might lose <laughs> Robert. He's going to quit the podcast. Now. Oh, no. I, I, I've done that. It works once out of ten times you have those ideas. and um, But it's sort of a natural entrepreneurial instinct. You yeah, think, you did can it. You take the cue. Can you get a lyric? And can you get a rock star? And then if somebody says they have a relationship with that star, you go, we're, we're at least in the it's door. so rare isn't it when it works like you say it's it's like going through a minefield you know to actually have that succeed and you did it in a big way on a number of occasions so i guess what you never share is how many times it wiped out you know, yeah you, you see the seven times it worked but not the 140 times that it just it either didn't come close or you completely overpaid some <laughs> b minus rock star who you were hoping would have you know, their comeback single and found out you just overpaid. They had a lark. <laughs> we're going to take worked. a, we're going to take a quick break guys coming up after the break though. Stick around. We're going to play name that score. Can we do it? Name, name that, that score. score. Matt, yeah. what's the topic today? 
Uh, we're going to go through some, uh, hopefully recognizable Danny Elfman work. Ooh, Why would we do that? That's so that nice. Awesome. All right, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Matt Schrader here, director of SCORE, of film music documentary. For the latest news from the film music world, follow us on Facebook. Just search SCORE, a film music documentary. Or let us know who you want to hear next on the show on Twitter, at SCORE the podcast. Welcome back to Score the Podcast. We're sitting here inside the awesome studios of James Newton Howard, and we're going to jump right into Name That Score. Get ready to play Name That Score! The film music game where a perfect score means you, yes you, could be a winner! Now let's play Name That Score! So here's how this works. Uh, We play five famous film scores, but in reverse, these are all reversed, you'll choose from three multiple choice answers. The fifth and final question is worth double. If anyone gets all five questions right, we give away a prize on our uh, Twitter account, at ScoreThePodcast, just mentioned name that score and because the best scores have a uh, memorable theme so does this uh, game that we're playing today today's theme is the scores of danny elfman we will go ahead and jump into this stuff with question one and again remember these are reversed i'll give you the options first is this from big fish edward scissorhands or the nightmare before christmas Uh, Answers. Big fish. Robert's going to go after uh, whoever. whoever I'm going to say whatever James Newton Howard says, so I'm (laughs) definitely on big fish. We're going to have to make Robert go first. I'm going to go with, uh, it has kind of a little, it reminds me of Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah. Here's our answer. It is Nightmare Before Christmas. I actually may not listen to you next time. No, you shouldn't. (laughs) Kenny gets a point. And uh, I didn't realize it's when you said reverse, you meant backwards. Yeah, literally, uh, yeah, literally yeah. backwards. Sorry, yeah. Jimi Hendrix yeah. tip. Right. Um, Fire away. Second question here. Is this from The Simpsons, Alice in Wonderland, or Beetlejuice? <laughs> Let's make Robert go first. I'm going to go with the show that was recorded 100 feet from me. 26 years in a row. I guess it's The Simpsons. I'm going to go with Simpsons also. Same. Everybody? Yep. The Simpsons. So everybody gets points for that one. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, we've all probably heard it hundreds of times. Um, question three. Uh, is this from Goodwill Hunting? Batman, Kenny. Or Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, man. Robert, is it Fifty Shades of Grey? I know you probably... <laughs> I, that's basically the color of my hair. So <laughs> I would say, uh, if I'm going to go, I'm going to guess Batman because it, it sort of has a epic, even backwards quality. That's my guess. I'm going to say Fifty Shades of Grey just because of that it's what it is. Then I'm going to laugh at Matt for uh, <laughs> picking that score. It was so memorable. That's uh, Batman. 
That's Batman. Yeah, Here's Batman. our answer. Oh, it didn't sound anything like Batman backwards. <laughs> it's from Batman. So uh, points. To now I'm the James joke. and Robert yep. and uh, Kenny. Oh man. Yep. Question number four: Is this from Milk, Spider-Man, or Silver Linings Playbook? These are getting a little bit tougher. so funny to even think first of all that's the music when scarlett johansson is having a bipolar episode no i don't think so that's the music (laughs) where harvey milk is being stalked by a crazed killer no i don't think so by process of elimination i'm spidering i'm gonna go spider-man i think it's jennifer lawrence who you were thinking of well jennifer lawrence it's funny there's a cameo by scarlett johansson that a lot of people aren't aware of Okay. Is that true? No. <laughs> In your mind. He's, he's rewriting. Re- right. I've recast. Casting it. director. Yeah, that was very convincing, though. Rob. It's Silver Linings Playbook 2. Yeah, I'm going with Spider Man, but that wasn't. It is Spider Man. wasn't backwards. That was not backwards. Yeah, I was going to say, oh. that didn't sound mixed Good up. Good ears. <laughs> you made a face. That's a. Uh, we're giving everyone points. Uh, you Good. got it anyway. So uh, points for everybody on that one. Last one. Last question. This one's worth double. Not that it matters. I think we're all even here. So we're going to go question number five. Is this from American Hustle, Men in Black? There's your Jennifer Lawrence. It was actually a quiz question. Or is this from Pee Wee's Big Adventure? What are the choices again? The choices are American Hustle, Men in Black, or Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Fire away. Uh, I'm going Men in Black. I'm going to say just because of the bassy feel to it, it doesn't really fit with the other two films. So I'm going to go with Men in Black also. I actually am going to be completely controversial here and go with Men in Black. (laughs) Points for everybody here. That is from Men in Black here. What happens when there's a three-way tie? What is our lucky... Then somebody's got to win. It's a uh, complicated soccer game here. I think we do... There is a bonus clip. Should we try to play this uh, last one? I guess fire away. Give me just a sec to pull it up. We can try. tiebreaker bonus clip number six. Why did, he, he's actually not prepared. Like he's like, let me get the bonus clip. Google find some. <laughs> that little switching device is pretty cool. The little soundboard? Yeah. All right, let's try. This is our bonus question. Hopefully this won't be too too easy for you all. We're going to make Robert uh, answer first. Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Are you giving no clues here? No clues on this oh, one. Oh, okay. But it's so clearly the ice dance by, by, from Edward Scissorhands. Oh, he even knew the title. <laughs> Not that I'm a geek for film music cues. I think this one might end in a tie. This uh, it's our first episode where anybody I'm else going to have a clear it, winner. It's it, it's Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, James. Um, who can argue with that? No. <laughs> all right, points for everybody. That means we're all winners here today. All right, congratulations, guys. That was really satisfying. I don't know why. I just thought doing that game <laughs> really just kind of raised the level of my day, and I appreciate James Newton Howard hey. joining us for, for all of that and sitting through Name That Score. You're a great, 
great, great citizen for bearing <laughs> through fun. that. <laughs> Very fun. But mostly, and I was talking outside before, we didn't get a chance to talk about maybe on the next time we bring you back, I wanted to reminisce a little bit about Water for Elephants, one of my favorite scores of yours, not heard by enough people. But um, I was telling some of the folks in your studio that when I teach a class on film music, which I do occasionally, I use a cue, which is when Robert Pattinson sees Reese for the first time in the oh. round, and she's doing tricks on the horse, and the audience have that. The audience noise just comes up a little bit, and then go, you you basically are the dialogue. Well, this. Such a beautiful film. I mean, so Francis beautiful. Lawrence is so good. Absolutely beautiful. And this cue? Thank you. Well, they, they, it's there's a, no dialogue. And it basically, you can see he's falling in love. Hmm. You can see the magic of the circus and the faces of the kids. And then at the end, he said, says something like, the first time I saw. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I love that movie. I use that cue to show how music can tell story without words. Because that... Is it fun to score scenes that don't have dialogue? Yeah, it's, you can it's just fantastic. Paint a know? picture. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, not a lot of people are willing to pull all the sound effects and dialogue out for a, for a stretch of time. But um, yeah, I really enjoy that. You know, the more of me I can get, the happier I am. Oh, that's great, and we really enjoy having you here. And well, yes, we allowing did. us to come into your beautiful studio. It really means a lot. It's been a pleasure, and it's great to see you, Robert. Thanks, James. It's been a long time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Uh, guys. We do want to remind our listeners that this is a new show, and we're trying to spread the word, so please go on iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast platform and subscribe. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at ScoreThePodcast. And uh, if you want to watch Score, a film music documentary, which inspired this podcast, you can get that at score-movie.com. Thanks very much, Kenny, Matt, and James. Thank you, everybody.